hello, hello, hello. Do you hear the lights crackling on the Hanukkah menorah? Do you hear the fire crackling on the hearths around the world for Christmas, other than here in Australia, because you wouldn't be burning a hearth in December, but maybe you would. We had our fireplace going this morning. It is Friday, the 11th of December, 2020, and welcome to episode 38 of the official Bobby Galinsky podcast, The Way It Is. I had to do something different. Normally, I'd say The Way It Is, the official Bobby Galinsky podcast, but I thought, let's mix it up. Let's see who's a loyal listener, or let's see who's a new listener. And um, we've got one little tidbit to uh, share with you. Oh my God, here it is. Don't you just love those stirring notes of the Quinn Martin production, The FBI. I used to love that as a kid. Ed from Zimbalist Jr. What an actor. Then the movie, The Untouchables from Brian De Palma with Elliot Ness reprised by Kevin Costner. That's back when the FBI did good things. That's before they started spying on presidential campaigns, which has been their hobby of late. But they did do a very good thing. They... um. They ended my serialized Hollywood Con Queen articles because they caught the Hollywood Con Queen as reported by Scott Johnston, the original author of the article in The Hollywood Reporter, police in Manchester, England, beautiful Manchester, England, have arrested 41-year-old Hargobind Tahil Romani, who was allegedly responsible for the long-running scam in which he impersonated Hollywood notables including Kathleen Kennedy, Wendy Murdoch, and bilked would-be creatives out of hundreds of thousands of dollars. Originally a native of Pakistan, he lived mostly in Indonesia, did time in a penitentiary there for embezzlement, and then centered himself in the U.S. and the U.K., where he was a very naughty boy. So, a little bit of goodness there that uh, we all like to keep you on top of the news. And... We're going to be talking about everything today. Fish escapes. Yes, fish escapes on a huge level. We're going to be talking about this day in history as we all know. We're going to be really hitting the Hollywood history and the festive season. And in fact, the Hollywood history is in trouble. Cinema's closing, streamers growing. You, you can't escape it. Um, I don't think there's a listener anywhere around the world that isn't a fan of the movies. If you're not a fan of the movies, I don't know how you even listen to me rattle on because that's such a, a big part of this uh, website. But it's been a pretty amazing early December so far. Um, we started our Hanukkah just, just a little bit early with some nice chocolates and things. Uh, once December 1st rolled around, we started eating chocolate, lots of chocolate, um, various types of chocolate, um, mostly milk chocolate, though, and uh, the dark chocolate does make it in from time to time, and I'm personally a fan of salted chocolate, salted salted caramel, although I'm the only one in the family who is, so I get it all to myself. So the battle of keeping the weight constant and not building a shelf on my stomach from eating too much chocolate and imbibing too much is on for really the next 60 days. It's a 60-day it's a battle, but stay on top of it. Stay on top of it. So, how have you been? Rhetorical question. I never hear back, except for those of you that comment. Um, like Scotty of Brighton. Scotty with the... Um, good posts. Thanks, Scotty. Thanks for listening. Thanks for sharing. And, uh, you know, right now in the Northern Hemisphere, I'm reading there's massive snowstorms all across Boston and the East Coast. California, been virtually locked down. The UK, chilly, 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 and uh, all kinds of, you know, 11 billion different tiers of lockdown and stuff like that, where 
Fortunately, here in Australia, we have very few restrictions at the moment. At the moment. And um, that's a pretty good thing. That's a pretty good thing. Because six months ago, was not looking good. Back in July, just right after my birthday, was not looking good at all. And um, hopefully it will last. My prediction of badness in the U.S. after the Thanksgiving holiday has um, regrettably come true. I didn't wish that to come true. I just knew it would come true because 80 million people traveling and closely packed together and you know, jamming up and stuff like that, things, things are going to happen. But um, you know my theory on what they should do by now, so I won't belabor that. Um, there's always a silver lining in everything, though. There's always a silver lining thing. With, uh, with all the lockdowns and um, passing of people, it's probably the first time in L.A. since I left in 94 that the 10 and the 405 look really uh, drivable looking at all the video. I was watching the other day and I go, wow, not much traffic at all. So um, let's look for the bright side of things. Let's look for the bright side anyway. But it's hard to look at the bright side over in Paris. I've just been watching the video of all the riots. It, you know, I wasn't a fan of Macron when he got in, but I've actually really warmed to him. He's really actually trying to do a good job. He's closing down all the radical mosques, which will leave probably maybe two in France. He's arresting all the terrorists as much as he can. He's, he's taking a hard line against um, Islamic fundamentalism there, which, which is good because there's nothing good, nothing good about Islamic fundamentalism. Those are the terrorists, not the religion as a whole, just, um, you know, what we read about and all the peaceful Muslims would agree because it's um, it's just a stain on on their religion as well as um, as any other group would do. He's trying, but now he's got you know the strikes everywhere, and he's got the more student riots, and he's got the black bloc rioting there, attacking police officers, and and stuff like that. Um, it's you know, it's just just you know this peace on earth thing for um, Christmas. Peace on Earth. Good luck with that one. Good luck with that one. We we would love it, but uh, that card. I'm not going to buy that Hallmark card, Peace on Earth, because uh, um, seems a bit belated or premature, depending how you look at it. But we can hope. We are grateful. We are grateful. I'm grateful that we live in a country where bombs aren't being dropped on us, and by and large, things aren't exploding all the time around us, other than the occasional barbecue. This is the season of barbecue explosions. Uh, you know, put a shrimp on the barbie in uh, Australia. And uh, a lot of people don't get that gas, that propane gas checked. Um, we don't have propane gas here anymore. Um, we're just, we're pure. We have a Weber, which the coals go in. And we have an electric barbecue also. And then we have the oven in the house, but uh, no pro, no propane, no uh, no exploding gas cylinders here. We've had too much experience with fire in the past, as you would have heard in early episodes. So fasten your seatbelts and um, take off your masks and uh, enjoy, enjoy this. Uh, this will not be the long belabored bonus episodes that you've got in the past two, but we'll be back. We're going to do a couple of tight ones here coming into to Christmas, about 45 minutes. Um, the way we were, the way they used to be. And then we'll revisit the time in January. Some people absolutely loving the long ones. Some people say, you know, the more the better. Some people, well, a couple of people go, they like it snappy. Not as many, but... Um, we're still experimenting as we grow, and thank you for helping us grow. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for man. Died at 1 p.m. Central Standard Time. My firm belief 
only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Could they hear FDR just, you know, fear itself. I never get tired of that. Never get tired of that. Um, it seems that um, would-be president-elect, he's not president-elect until January 6th. So we uh, we have to keep that accurate. Um, the, mini the media might say president-elect, but he's not. It's not official. The media um, has nothing to do with the Constitution. But would-be president-elect Joe Biden broke his foot the other day, um, fractured his foot. So he's a bit crippled now. Um, and getting around, so he's a bit more like FDR there. So maybe he thinks he's channeling FDR, and that'll give him a bit more magic. We we don't know. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Was it accidental? Whoa! Or was it uh, on purpose? Accidentally on purpose? Did you hear that little that little bing came through? Was it accidental? Maybe that's a sign. Well, on this day today in history, what happened on December 11th in history? Well. Americans rejoice. In 1620, Mayflower pilgrims came ashore at Plymouth Bay, traditionally thought to be at Plymouth Rock, Massachusetts. And that is where America, America started. In 1792, Francis King Louis XVI went on trial, accused of high treason and crimes against the state. It was a good day for art lovers in 1913 as the Mona Lisa was recovered two years after it was stolen from the Louvre. And for those of you that are in love, and love conquers all, on this day, 1936, Edward VIII announced in a radio broadcast that he was abdicating the British throne to marry Wallace Simpson. Well, I know a bit of history, and I know a bit of history from the crown. Now, the two are mutually exclusive events because the crown is drama and narrative and not necessarily 100% accurate, but I'm very happy that Edward VIII went for love over the monarchy. But... Um, I don't think he was a Rhodes Scholar himself, so to speak. And I'm not quite sure that she was all he thought she'd be cracked up to be, but they seemed to be in love. And that's cool. To me, back in the first series of The Crown, when he's standing on the hill playing the bagpipes at the end of the season, or I think it was the end of that episode when he's made that decision, that was possibly one of the best episodes of the crown. Absolutely amazing. Change the course of history. Change the whole course of history. Because of a girl. Yep. Girls do that to us. Now, in 1997, delegates from 150 industrial nations attending a UN climate conference in Kyoto, Japan, reached an agreement to control heat-trapping greenhouse gases. Well, that's pretty much fucked the economy for, you know, 30 years now. And for the rest of it, for car makers, for everybody else. So, got to blame Kyoto. Now, unless, of course, you embrace climate change and are a strong environmentalist, in which case that was a very good watershed moment for you. And I'm happy for you. Now, in film and TV, 1967, one of the top 100 films of all time, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, directed by Stanley Kramer. Stanley Kramer, amazing. With Spencer Tracy, Sidney Poitier, and Katherine Hepburn, premiered in New York City. Hepburn later won the Academy Award for Best Actress in 1968. On this day in music, in 1946, Hank Williams begins to record on the Sterling label, and a bit of sadness in sport in 1951. Joe DiMaggio announced his retirement from baseball. And on this day in 2017, a bomb detonated in the New York City subway in the Times Square 42nd Street Port Authority bus terminal in New York City. It is today known as the 2017 New York City attempted bombing. 
Famous birthdays, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, never wrote a short story in his life. Leo X, very popular pope, Pope Leo. I think that's where Leonardo DiCaprio's parents named him from. And um, weddings. Bill Haley and the Comets, rock and roll musician Bill Haley, wedded Dorothy Crow on this day in famous deaths. Betty Page, hot pinup girl, and Ravi Shankar all died on this day. So um, once again, a Freaky Friday gives us something to think about as we mull and review today in history. Now, something I'd like to talk about that I flagged last week is a wonderful article from the amazing pundit Jeff Jacoby of the Boston Globe, who uh, shared back a few weeks ago that a student debt bailout would be unjust and unwise. And boy, do I agree with him. During the presidential primary campaign last winter, now, those of you that have been to university or those of you that have children that have been to university or going to university will definitely, definitely have an opinion on this one. During the presidential primary campaign last winter, as Democratic candidates were promoting various plans to cancel federal student loan debt, one Iowa father's encounter with Elizabeth Warren captured the raw unfairness of the idea. Elizabeth, I'm an Indian. Oh, no, I'm not an Indian. I'm sorry, but I got special treatment for years and years saying that I was an Indian. Elizabeth Warren captured the raw unfairness of the idea. Quote, my daughter's getting out of school. I saved all my money so she doesn't have any student loans, the man said. Am I going to get my money back? And Warren answered, of course not. So, you're going to pay for people who didn't save any money, and those of us who did the right thing get screwed, said the father, visibly upset. My buddy had fun, bought a car, went on vacations. I saved my money. He made more than I did, but I worked a double shift, worked extra. My daughter's worked since she was 10 years old. Now, that exchange vividly illustrated the injustice of student debt proposals that would, in effect, punish those who saved and worked more to pay for college, those who deferred higher education until they could afford it, and those who responsibly repaid their loans by forcing them to pay for those who did not. Even more outrageous, it would compel the two-thirds of Americans who didn't earn a college degree to help pick up the tab for many of those who did. Of the nearly 1.7 trillion, trillion fucking dollars in student loan debt, according to the Federal Reserve, the vast majority, more than 1.5 trillion. So for those of you that are liberals on the left, 1.5 trillion is most of 1.7 trillion, okay? Okay, I, I just want to make sure you got that. Okay, most of that vast majority is held by the U.S. government. Since higher education correlates strongly with higher earnings, these college loans are concentrated amongst the relatively well-to-do. So an immense government program to forgive outstanding student debt would disproportionately benefit high-income people at the expense of those less fortunate. That means lower-income people. High-income people, more fortunate. Low-income people, less fortunate. Okay, I think we can agree on that. Democrats a year ago may have thought that offering a bailout to college-educated, upper-middle-class voters made political sense. But how can they still think so after an election in which the quote-unquote blue wave they expected never materialized, in part because of Republican gains amongst working-class Americans without college degrees? Yet, leading Democrats and progressives are doubling down. What a surprise. Quote, Biden-Harris can cancel billions of dollars in student loan debt, Warren tweeted recently. 
Chuck Schumer, the Senate Minority Leader, claims that any graduate student's first $50,000 of debt can be vanquished through an executive order by the next president. On, and that's him assuming that it will be Joe Biden, which statistically it looks like it will be. On Wednesday, a coalition of 236 liberal organizations called upon Biden to issue that order upon taking office. Now, it is far from clear, Mr. Jacoby shares, that billions of dollars of debt can be simply written off via presidential decree. But set aside the procedural question. A huge new student loan forgiveness scheme is indefensible. Indefensible is a matter of policy. Look at this. Well, you can't look at this, so I'll share it for you. That would be one of the great things about having video. I could show you this wonderful graft, this graft, graft. And actually, there you go, Freudian slip. It is graft, but I'd love to show you this graph, and we will in future episodes. One day, one day, our crack production team from Vallejo, California, will be on it, and we will be on either YouTube or Rumble. As noted, it would amount to a boon for the relatively well-off, but it would also treat similarly situated people dissimilarly. Imagine three 30-year-old neighbors, each of whom earns $50,000, okay? Three 30-year-old neighbors, each earns fifty grand. One's a construction worker. He never went to college. Could be a she, but we'll use he. A legal secretary with a two-year associate's degree and $2,000 in remaining student debt, and a software engineer who attended a four-year college and graduate school and still has $50,000 in unpaid loans. So that bailout that erased $50,000 of student debt would give nothing to one of the neighbors, a modest $2,000 to the second, and a $50,000 bonanza to the third. College loan forgiveness isn't just unfair, it is unnecessary. It is moronic. Some borrowers have a hard time managing their student debt, but the data make clear that this is not a national crisis. According to the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, 70% of college loans are fully paid off within 10 years. 70% within 10 years. Among borrowers with loan amounts between 5000 and 10000 fully 80% clear the debt within a decade. So, for the typical American household paying down a student loan, the Fed Reserve's survey of consumer finances has found payments amount to around 5% of income. Not very much. According to Jason Delisle, a specialist on higher education financing at the American Enterprise Institute, a recent analysis of 4 million families' financial records by the J.P. Morgan Chase Institute calculated that the typical monthly student loan payment ranged between $144 and $203. That's in America. This is American dollars. For the median family, that amounts to 5.5% of take-home income. That's nothing. Of course, of course, there are borrowers who find themselves struggling to make their payments. But those borrowers can avail themselves of existing means to have their debt deferred, reduced, or even canceled. By one count, there are 13 major student loan forgiveness programs. Some are geared to people who work in public service, education, healthcare, or the military. Others enable borrowers to have their payments capped at an affordable percentage of their discretionary income. Discretionary income. Bottom line. And bottom line means bottom line. The overwhelming majority of college loans are paid off and help is available for debtors who get in over their heads. So let's summarize. Even amid the financial stresses triggered by the pandemic, The American people are not drowning in debt, college-related or otherwise. Bloomberg noted the other day that household debt payments are currently lower than they've been in decades, which suggests that even if the government were to forgive all student loan debt, it wouldn't provide much of a fiscal stimulus. What it would provide is an unstoppable, unquenchable demand for the government to wipe out other 
kinds of personal obligations. Hey, let's cancel rent. Let's cancel mortgage. Cancel student debt. Representative Ayanna Presley tweeted in July. And why stop there? From Matthew Walther writing in The Week, which is hardly a bastion of left or right-wing you know, fiction, comes a call for a debt jubilee that would wipe out $50,000 of debt owed for nothing at all. Credit cards, auto loans, remaining mortgage balances, and especially medical debts, which should be discharged without any limit. Children at this time of year send Santa Claus lists of things they want for free, but adults know that Santa isn't real. Santa isn't the federal government either. Washington cannot magically make people's debts disappear. Away! Away! Washington cannot magically make people's debts disappear. It can only compel other people to pay them. Those other people could be you. That may or may not be good politics, but it is certainly terrible economics. Jeff Jacoby hits it on the nose. Couldn't hit it any harder on the nail right on the head. And of course, those that just want the magical free things will go, oh, well, you know, uh, oh, I want, want free things. I want, I want everything for free. I want everything for, for free. I want to want to protest. Let's see, here's what I want to do. I want to go to college for free, but I don't really want to go to any classes. I want to protest. I want to go in the streets and protest. I want to live in mom's basement and I want to get free stuff. Free stuff. That's my generation. Generation free, not Generation Z. Generation free. That's that's it. That's what I want. Okay. Okay. What is that that I hear? Oh, what is that I hear? the dulcet sounds of the theremin playing somewhere over the rainbow means science bitches and interestingly enough just a couple hours ago listen to judy garland well not judy garland but renee zellweger channeling judy garland in her academy award-winning role best actress as judy and judy 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 singing Somewhere Over the Rainbow, the epilogue of her career. And uh, I wouldn't say it was a great movie. It was an awesome performance. And um, tying into science, what we know in science that Judy didn't know is that alcohol and barbiturates do not mix very well. No, they do not. But... On a more prescient note of science bitches, we've got many science bitches today. Many, many articles, many, many articles instead of one long calculated article. Well, let's start at birth. Did you know that babies have a hundred more bones than adults? I'll bet you didn't. Babies have about 300 bones at birth with cartilage between many of them. This extra flexibility helps them pass through the birth canal and also allows for rapid growth. With age, many of the bones fuse, leaving 206 bones that make up an average adult skeleton. This from the amazing folks at the How It Works science team. Well, that could be a bit arguable if you were on a, a game show and they asked you how many bones in the body. You'd have to qualify it was the adult body. Well... Did you know that a teaspoon of neutron star, I mean, I know how much a teaspoon of sugar is, and a spoonful of sugar makes the medicine go down, but a teaspoon of neutron star would weigh 6 billion tons? Who the fuck figures this shit out? Probably someone that went to that four-year college and, um, and paid the money that wants the free shit, wants the free shit. A neutron star 
is the remnants of a massive star that has run out of fuel. We've all run out of fuel on a long trip, haven't we? The dying star explodes in a supernova while its core collapses in on itself due to gravity, forming a super-dense neutron star. Astronomers measure the mind-bogglingly large masses of stars or galaxies in solar masses, with one solar mass equal to the sun's mass, that is 2 times 1,030 kilograms to 4.4 by 1,030 pounds. Oh, this is way above me. I, I stopped at algebra. It, I figured, you know, when am I going to need all this stuff? Although, although I thought trigonometry was a waste of time too. And I was sitting in the back seat of a car in the 1970s on the way to Vail, Colorado from Denver with my best friend Will at the time and his dad, Colonel Porter, a uh, full bird colonel. Late, the late Colonel Porter, full, full bird colonel in the Air Force. And we were talking about things. And I said, Colonel Porter, I think trigonometry is a waste of time. And he was a man of few words. And he kind of looked in the rearview mirror and looked at me and said, you wouldn't think that if you were running out of fuel in your plane and had to calculate whether it was closer to go back to base or land somewhere else. I figured he might have known what he was talking about. But back to our... Prescient. Chenane, typical neutron stars have a mass of up to three solar masses, which is crammed into a sphere with a radius of approximately 10 kilometers, which is 6.2 miles, resulting in some of the densest matter in the known universe. Hey, it matters. It matters. And last but not least, Hawaii is moving 7.5 centimeters closer to Alaska each year. That means that the insane Maisie Hirano is moving 7.5 centimeters closer to Sarah Palin every year. Eventually, Sarah Palin will be able to see Maisie Hirono's apartment from her house in Alaska. The Earth's crust is split into gigantic pieces called tectonic plates. Not the kind of plates in Nancy Pelosi's mouth, but tectonic plates. These plates are in constant motion, propelled by currents in the Earth's upper mantle. Hot, less dense rock rises before cooling and sinking, giving rise to circular convection currents, just like in our Mila oven, which act like giant conveyor belts, slowly shifting the tectonic plates above them. Hawaii sits in the middle of the Pacific Plate, which is slowly drifting northwest towards the North American Plate, back to Alaska. Fuck! The plate's pace is comparable to the speed at which our fingernails grow. Wow. That's heavy. That is heavy. So, short but brief, that is today in... No, 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 no. That's science, bitches. Whew. Even got all my confused myself there. A little different pace of the show, mixing it up. Thought it was a curveball. It was a slider. Thought it was a fastball. It was a knuckleball. But I was able to recover. And you will too after you listen to things like this because you will be all the smarter for it. Won't you, Brad? Won't you? Check out the big brain on Brad. You're a smart motherfucker. That's right. Well, it's entertainment time, and as shared at the beginning of the show, let's talk about the future of Hollywood. Hollywood's obituary, the sequel, now streaming in the 110-year history of the American film industry, never has so much upheaval arrived so quickly and on so many fronts, as told by Brooks Barnes. Los Angeles. Hollywood's like Egypt, full of crumbled pyramids. It'll never come back. It'll just keep crumbling until finally the wind blows the last studio prop across the sands. That quote 
from David O. Selznick, the Golden Era producer, made that glum proclamation back in 1951. A new entertainment technology, TV, was emasculating cinema as a cultural force, and film studios had started to fossilize into bottom-line-oriented businesses. As Selznick put it, Hollywood had been grabbed by a little group of bookkeepers and turned into a junk industry. Well, sound familiar? Since then, Hollywood has repeatedly written its own obituary. It died when interlopers like Gulf Plus Western Industries began buying studios in the 60s. And again, when Star Wars, 1977, and Superman, 1978, turned movies into toy advertisements. The 80s, VCRs. The 90s, the rise of media super conglomerates. The 2000s, the endless fantasy sequels. And the 2010s, Netflix, Netflix, Netflix. Each brought new rounds of existential hand-wringing. Underneath the tumult, however, the essence of the film industry remained intact. Hollywood continued to believe in itself. Yup, sure, he writes, we churn out lowest common denominator junk. Studio executives would concede over $40 salads at the Polo Lounge, which, by the way, as a fan of the Polo Lounge, they're worth it. It's how we make our quarterly numbers, but we can still generate the occasional thunderclap with ambitious films like Get Out and 1917 and Black Panther and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood arriving on big screens and commanding the culture for months on end. In one breath, all is lost. Big tech is going to eat us alive. In the next Everyone still loves us. Just look at all those pinwheel-eyed fans buying tickets. But the moment of crisis in which Hollywood now finds itself is different. In the 110-year history of the American film industry, never has so much upheaval arrived so fast on so many fronts, leaving many writers, directors, studio executives, agents, and other movie workers disoriented and demoralized wandering in complete darkness, as one longtime female producer told me. These are melodramatic people by nature, but talk to enough of them, and you'll get the strong sense that their fear is real this time. Have streaming, the coronavirus, and other challenges combined to blow away, finally, unequivocally, the last remnants of Hollywood. Well, the last nine months have shaken the movie business to its bones, says Jason Blum, the powerhouse producer whose credits range from The Purge to Black Klansman. The feel of a dismantled film set. Streaming, of course, has been disrupting the entertainment business for some time. You might remember Netflix started delivering movies and TV shows via the internet back in 2007. And by 2017, just a decade later, Disney was trying to supercharge its own streaming ambitions by bidding for Murdoch's 21st Century Fox, ultimately swallowing most of the company for $71.3 billion in an effort to expand its library of content and gain control of Hulu. However, in recent months, the shift towards streaming has great... The shift towards bad punctuation has greatly accelerated with more than half of the 5,477 theaters, I guess you were wondering how many there were, 5,477 in the U.S. still closed. More than a dozen movies originally dusted for big screens have been rerouted to streaming services or online rental platforms. Pixar's latest adventure, Soul, not about the Korean city, will debut exclusively on Disney Plus on Christmas Day. It will complete with Warner, compete with Warner Brothers' Wonder Woman 1984, which will arrive in theaters and, and on HBO Max on Christmas Day, a crossing the Rubicon moment in the eyes of analysts. That's what they call day and date release everywhere. Meanwhile, the owner of Regal Cinemas, the number two multiplex chain in North America, just took on emergency debt to avoid insolvency. 
Movie theaters across the country, he said, are at risk of going dark for good. Retrenchments at Warner Brothers have also bruised Hollywood's psyche. Over the years, another film studios were lobbed between owners. Universal, downsized, Paramount, or subsumed, 20th Century Fox. Warner's remained virtually untouched, emerging as an emblem of stability and spending. But in recent months, so sorry, the studio's been streamlined by an aggressive new owner, AT&T resulting in the departure of a startling number of studio executives who had been there for decades. For now, Warner has 10 films on its 2022 theatrical release schedule. 10. Last year, it released 18. And the black icing on the cake? The shutdown has stripped Hollywood of its internal culture. The otherworldly, some would say silly, rituals that have long served as a magnet. A year without red carpets. No CNBC-seen power lunches at Chateau Marmont. Zoom is the new awards ballroom. And one recent phone conversation that felt more like a therapy session, one Warner Brothers executive told me that the town felt like a dismantled movie set. The gleaming false fronts had been hauled away to revere (sighs) mere mortals wandering around in a mess. Or perhaps, he continued, speaking on the condition of anonymity to avoid conflict with his employer, the proper metaphor was a movie, perhaps The Remains of the Day, the 1993 drama starring Anthony Hopkins as an English butler. As the amazing Vincent Canby wrote in his New York Times review, the Merchant Ivory film was about the last worn-out gasps of a feudal system that was supposed to have vanished centuries before. Centuries before. Streaming services and theaters will settle in the coexistence, predicted J.J. Abrams, the bad robot productions chairman. There's a reason that the Roaring Twenties followed the 1918 pandemic, he said. We have a pent-up, desperate need to see each other, to socialize and have communal experiences. And there is nothing that I can think of, nothing that I can think of that is more exciting than being in a theater with people you don't know, who don't necessarily like the same sports teams, the same politicians, pray to the same God, or eat the same food, but you're screaming together, laughing together, crying together. It's a social necessity. I think going to the theater is like going to church and watching a movie at home is like praying at home, Mr. Abrams said. It's not that you can't do it, but the experience is wholly different. Over? Hollywood? Come on! I'm working on and excited about and hopeful about a number of theatrical projects, Mr. Abrams said. His most recent film, Star Wars, The Rise of Skywalker, took in more than a billion at the global box office. It was one of nine movies to reach that threshold last year, with Avengers Endgame collecting nearly three billion. The hoary tradition of exhibiting movies on big screens, which dates to the 1890s, may have vast challenges, not the least of which is a 78% plunge in domestic ticket sales for the year to date. But a business of its scale, as Mr. Abrams and others will tell you, does not vanish forever in the span of a few self-quarantining habits. People will change their habits. People will change their habits. Yes, there's a pent-up demand to see movies in a theater, says Pete Chernin, whose Hollywood career has spanned four decades. But people change their habits. Mr. Abrams, as much of a TV wonderkind as a movie one, described the difference between small screens and big ones by summarizing something he once heard on national public radio. Television, he explained, is the child, and the audience is the parent. It's smaller than you. You can control it by changing the channel. With movies, the roles are reversed. You are the small one. You're supposed to look up to them. Critics have been transported, and yes, you're the small one. 
you're supposed to look up at them. Will we look up at the movies? We hope so. It kind of reminds me of Mank, which I reviewed in last week's podcast. The Oscar race will kick in the high gear with the wide release of Mank on Netflix, set mostly in the 30s and filmed in black and white. The film focus on Hollywood's romantic heyday, back when pictures were pictures, by telling a story about the creation of Citizen Kane. It's a tale of old Hollywood that's more steeped than old Hollywood. It's glamour and sleaze, as Owen Gleiberman and Variety shared. It's layer cake hierarchies. It's corruption and glory than just about any movie you've seen. Go see it on your screen and look up. Hollywood will still be around for a while, we hope. And that is the entertainment news from the entertainment capital of the world. So, what's your podcast wearing? You're not going to hear that episode today because I'm embarrassed. I'm, I'm embarrassed about what I'm wearing and I'm not going to share it with you. I haven't baked anything and I haven't drank anything memorable. That's just been the kind of week it, uh, it is. It's just been a real topsy-turvy, upside-down week. As we just started Hanukkah, and the presents are starting to come in, the chocolate is rolling, and we're gearing up for Christmas, because there's going to be a lot happening this next week. And food, baking, wine, fashion. You're going to freak out this coming week. And politics. But I do want to leave you with... One lovely story, one story of courage, consideration, bravery, ability to organize, and the desire to be free. The desire to be free. Well, we're going to take you over to Tasmania, as we did last week, but for a far different story than a story about Martin Bryant. Salmon farmer Juan Aquaculture is investigating another unexplained incident that allowed an entire pen of 130,000 salmon to escape free into the ocean off southern Tasmania. The company said 130,000 salmon escaped through a, quote, significant tear in a fortress pen in Storm Bay, on Wednesday morning. Early last week, the company lost more than 50,000 fish when a pen caught fire in the Diancastrio Channel, melting part of the structure. Juan Aquaculture founder Francis Bender told the ABC the company was investigating both incidents. This written by Fiona Breen at the ABC, but insisted that the latest was not a failure of equipment. We are very concerned. I think it was the fish organizing and the fish being suicidal. Strong winds in recent days were not to blame, and the sea was relatively calm. We were investigating and had our underwater remotely operated vehicles in the pen yesterday, Mrs. Bender said. It wasn't the construction of the net. The integrity of the pen and the entire structure is intact. The integrity of the pen. I'll tell you about the integrity of the pizza sometime. And that's what's concerning. Ms. Bender said the tear occurred in the pen's internet close to the base of the pen, about four meters underwater. Talking to the Tasmanian Country Hour on Thursday at an outside broadcast in the Derwent Valley, Francis Bender appeared visibly upset by the second unexplained escape in a short time period. Wednesday's breakout involved young fish weighing just over half a kilogram. Children, little children fish. Because they're so small, she said, they're not expected to survive for very long at all. They were part of next year's crop. The loss would set back the company's growth schedule. And the company has come under fire over the mass fish breakouts. Escape! They have escaped! It creates more concern in the community. There's already concern in the community, and we're very aware of that. We don't want these things to happen. We just don't want these things to happen. In a statement, Juan Aquaculture said, after internal investigations, if the company thought there was evidence of foul play, it's not chickens, there's no foul play, it's fish the matter would be referred to police. 
the inadvertent release of 180,000 Atlantic salmon has also been a boon for recreational fisher, fishermen who've been out in droves catching them. Asked how she felt about them, Ms. Bender said, good luck to them. Merry Christmas. And that's just about going to wrap it up for today's show. We've got a massive Jupiter-Saturn conjunction happening in just a matter of 10 days that we're going to touch on next week. Things at Mystic Medusa will tell us what's going on. We will bring you up to date on everything in the U.S. election. Let you know about the impending wildfires that always start this time of year in Australia. And always be doing the right thing when we can. And we're going to take you out a little bit different this week. In honor of the 180,000 salmon who are free at last, free at last. And the king salmon that organized them has said, let's get the fuck out of here. Get out of Tasmania. We're going to play The Salmon Song from Steve Hillage, one of the 50 greatest guitarists of our time. After years truly, of course. Enjoy The Salmon Song. Keep on swimming. Life is swimming upstream. Love you. See you next week.
I hope you're still here. If you enjoyed that, that was Steve Hillage from the album L, produced by Todd Brundgren on Virgin Records in 1976. Amazing. Don't forget to subscribe, www.thewayitis.blueberry.net. That's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y.net. You'll get the weekly show and the newsletter and all the show notes and links and everything with it. Thanks so much. Cheers. <laughs>